joy to introduce our speaker, Paul Hewitt. Professor Paul Hewitt is, was, was formerly the head of atomic and nuclear physics at the Clarendon Research Laboratories at the University of Oxford. He's an Ulster man. He was, obtained his BSc and PhD from Queen's University of Belfast. And during a very vast career, he has visited and been a researcher in practically every one of the main areas of research on his subject. He's an associate of the Faraday Institute of Science Technology at Cambridge, an active Christian, and is frequently called upon to talk to groups like ourselves. And we are very, very grateful, Paul, that you've given up time to come and speak to us. So, Paul, may I? Good evening, everybody, and um, thank you for the warm welcome. Coming from the north of Ireland, we pride ourselves on the welcome we give visitors, and I have to tell you that tonight I got an equally warm welcome from you all. Thank you very much indeed, and thank you too for Richard for that wonderful prayer. I um, almost feel I don't need to say anything after what he was talking about, but we'll be um, thinking about this subject of chaos and chance uh, in creation, and um, I don't know if you're a, an avid Radio 4 listener like I am, and, you may, and you're up early enough to hear Thought for the Day. Well, one of my favorite contributors to Thought for the Day was Rabbi Lionel Blue. And uh, being Jewish, of course, he was allowed to tell Jewish jokes, um, just like I can tell Irish jokes, but you can't. <laughs> and one of the favorite ones I remember concerned a, a Jewish businessman who got into financial difficulty. And so he went to synagogue and prayed that he would win the lottery. And, and he, next week, he didn't win. So he went back the following week and prayed again, a little bit more urgently, and still didn't win. And this went on for several weeks until eventually, one Sabbath morning, he called out, Dear God, if you're there, you know how much I need this money. Please help me to win the lottery. And then into the silence of the synagogue boomed a heavenly voice. I hear you, my son, but meet me halfway. Buy a ticket. <laughs> so that's one kind of problem that we have in um, dealing with chance and religion, our faith in God at one level. And it's um, a problem that's been around for a long time, of course. Um, but you know, being a bit more serious, how do we answer the charge that life is a lottery? We often hear that said, especially when things go wrong. And how do we come to terms with events that seem totally random, that makes us feel that perhaps even life itself is totally meaningless. And this indeed is one of the very robust arguments for atheism, is it not? That um, life as we see it seems to lack meaning or purpose and that life itself may be just an accidental blip in a meaningless universe. 
And another problem, of course, is that concerning lotteries, that they're supposed to be fair. It's supposed to be based on pure chance. And people would probably be a bit annoyed if they thought that God was interfering um, in the outcome of the lottery. It's very randomness is what guarantees fairness. And yet often we feel that life isn't fair, that um, there seems to be no correlation between what happens to people and whether they've been good or bad. And that kind of moral issue surrounding suffering in our world is perhaps an even more robust argument for atheism. So if chance or randomness has been a problem for religion, it has to be said it's also been a problem for science. The randomness in nature, when we look at it all around us, has made it difficult down the ages to um, understand if there is any order to anything. In fact, when people looked at it in ancient times, it was by no means obvious that sense could be made of nature, such was the random nature of it. Now, it's been commonly accepted that the biblical idea of a creator was a major factor in the development of modern science, in Western Europe, that is. Remember that the God of the Bible was a God of order, and nature existed for his purpose and not um, being purely random. The order in nature was there because it was made by an orderly God. Hosea, the prophet, you may recall, declared that the regular harvests were a gift of God, and the regularity were not the result of sacrifices to pagan gods. And then the medieval philosophers who were engaged in natural philosophy, they had confidence that it was because a rational God had made the world according to rational principles that they could be understood by human beings because it's not immediately obvious that we could understand what's going on. Johannes Kepler, if you have the first slide, please, just to get a little bit of, um, just in case you think I'm getting a nervous twitch, I'm going to do that to get the next slide along, okay? So just so you don't worry. <laughs> so here is Johannes Kepler. And he was the man, you may remember, who discovered the mathematical form of the planetary orbits in the form of ellipses. And he wrote, the chief aim of all investigations of the external world should be to discover the rational order and harmony which has been imposed on it by God and which he revealed to us in the language of mathematics. And of course, um, not long after that, Isaac Newton discovered that the laws of physics that held on earth, he was able to show that these same laws applied also to the heavenly bodies and that the universe as a whole was like a giant cosmic clockwork machine. And the regularity of the solar system, according to Newton, spoke of, and I'll quote, the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. What he saw was in its regularity and dependability, the reflection of a reliable and dependable God, 
And so the claim was being made all the way along there that the order in nature could tell us something about the character of God, its creator. And that was a a theme really all the way through the early stages of modern science or natural philosophy as it was then. So if the order in nature tells us something about God, what does chance and randomness say about the God who made it? Now, of course, one approach to the problem is really just to deny the reality of chance. So chance in this view is an illusion that underneath it all there is actually a deterministic order and it only looks like randomness and chance and chaos. According to Einstein, God does not play dice. He was a resolute determinist and he, taking that view, remained sceptical to his death about whether quantum theory could ever be a complete description of nature. He was very much of the view that the world was determined. And he wrote, Everything is determined by forces over which we have no control. It is determined for the insect as well as for the star. Human beings, vegetables, or cosmic dust, we all dance to a mysterious tune intoned in the distance by an invisible piper. So, in Einstein's idea of a God, and it was a rather uh, unusual idea of God, but what he called God seemed to be responsible for everything. And that included, of course, all kinds of evil and suffering in the world. And this was a particular problem for Einstein, because if God was responsible for everything, including evil, then he would appear to be judging himself And this, said Einstein, was incoherent. And because of that, he rejected the idea of a personal God. And he wrote, The idea of a personal God is quite alien to me and seems even naive. So here we have perhaps one of the greatest scientists who've ever lived, natural philosopher, implying that he can understand something about the nature of God from the nature of the world. Drawing conclusions about the character of God or whatever that might mean. So that's one approach. Chance um, is illusory. And the classical theological approach has also usually been to deny the reality of chance. And the argument was put most famously by Calvin, perhaps. And he wrote, There is nothing cheaper than a sparrow... And yet God's eye is upon it, and nothing happens to it by chance. Will he then, who looks after sparrows, neglect to watch over the lives of men? Note, nothing happens to it by chance. The story told that Calvin was walking down the street one day, and uh, someone came up to him and said, Excuse me, are you by any chance Dr. Calvin? And he turned to him and said, Chance has nothing to do with it. (laughs) So some Christian writers and theologians, especially in the Reformed tradition, would have us believe that God has determined everything. 
Some even say that that applies even to the position and speed of every single atom in the universe. There is no maverick molecule in the universe, writes R.C. Sproul. In other words, he leaves absolutely nothing to chance. Now, it seems to me, however, if that is true, then we have an even more serious problem. For if our everything, even the atoms in our brains, are being controlled by God, then our very thoughts, which arise from the motion of those atoms in our brains, are then ultimately, in some sense, determined by God. So that means that what we believe, everything we think, is being determined by God. And the conclusion is that free will is an illusion. So let's turn again to to science. We've noted that modern science developed in the 16th century, building on the ideas of Francis Bacon, that you could understand the world by doing experiments and doing repeatable tests because nature would be orderly. And to do so, you had to eliminate as much as possible random effects. And only then could the underlying orderliness of nature be discovered. But then, more recently, science has started to include randomness as part of the problem and study randomness itself. So, chance has become a subject of scientific study. And let me explain, just to clarify things, that there are basically two kinds of chance. There's a chance that involves, um, underlies complex problems, things like chaos, um, the weather patterns that seem to be unpredictable. There are problems that are just extremely complicated that we can't work out and therefore we can't predict the outcome. Chaos theory has been developed more recently in in science, um, uses mathematical equations that are totally deterministic. In other words, you can calculate exactly the the solution of the equations, but when you try to predict what they will, uh, will describe in the future, we discover that we can't specify the value of the initial conditions, the numbers to put into those equations, so that after time, the predictions get less and less accurate. So our weather, um, which is dominated by chaos, can only be predicted a few days in advance. We don't know what the weather's going to be like in three or four months' time. And so there's a limit to how much we can predict. There's an inherent unpredictability in these kind of problems, even though they are determined. But we can't predict what the outcome will be. And we call that kind of um, unpredictability or chance a kind of epistemological chance. That's because we don't know enough to be able to predict accurately. But there's another kind of chance which underlies um, problems that are by their nature indeterminate. And I'm thinking especially here of uh, my own field of atomic physics that's described by quantum theory that has at its very nature... Uh, the impossibility of making an exact prediction. All we can do, it says, is calculate the probability that something will happen. We can never be absolutely certain. And there are some things that the more we are certain about this aspect, 
the more uncertain a related aspect will be. Some kind of indeterminacy is built into the creation. And this is, by its nature, unpredictable. And that's ontological chance. Even if we knew things, we wouldn't be able to predict exactly what will happen. So that's the chance that's inherent in its nature. So the common factor, of course, is that the outcomes are unpredictable. And so from the rest of tonight, we don't need to worry about the difference between these these two kinds of chance. Um, The key feature is that they're unpredictable. And in a sense, um, the worst case scenario for God is that there's this second kind of ontological chance that there's something that even he couldn't predict. By its very nature, it's unpredictable. So this kind of unpredictability or chance features occurs quite often in science and probably everybody here in this room is familiar with the underlying uh, randomness inherent in biological evolution. So we have the first example, chance in science. um, The whole theory of evolution rests upon the random variations that occur um, in the gene instructions for making life So random variations lead to changes. Some of them um, are advantageous and enable the organism to adapt to life, and so it's passed down, whereas other ones can be detrimental. But the initial change in the gene is a random event. It can be caused by a variety of things, perhaps a cosmic ray uh, from outer space happens to zap the DNA molecule at a certain place and cause a switch in the genes. And that's a totally random event. And out of that randomness develops new life forms. Then, of course, there's um, the randomness inherent in uh, meteorology, the chaos theory that we've mentioned already. And that is deterministic, but still unpredictable. And then thirdly, there's the underlying inherent unpredictability of the atomic world. And so uh, what we have then is... to take account of the fact that chance in some sense is real and it's not just a product of our ignorance and we need to deal with that and that presents uh, to the believer a particular challenge and the challenge that comes from chance in modern times was put very forcibly by Jacques Monod, Nobel Prize winner in the 1950s for his work in molecular biology and he wrote this that man at last knows he is alone in the unfeeling immensity of the universe, out of which he has emerged by chance. And that very influential book, Chance and Necessity, by Mono, um, has been developed in recent times by people like Richard Dawkins, who used this argument that the evolution that's based on this randomness essentially destroys the argument for God's existence that is based on the idea of God as the designer, that we can explain everything in terms of these random variations. We don't need God to account for the evolution of life forms. And therefore, he says that because this chance is real, that God is a delusion. And in a sense... Uh, Some religious people, creationists, for example, and advocates of intelligent design, 
will admit that argument because for them, chance means that there's no designer God. There's no design inherent in it. Um, But they would argue that because there is design, then chance must be the illusion that God is real and therefore chance is the illusion. So the next slide will show us that the significance of chance is for the atheist that chance means that um, there's no creator God. We don't need a creator because the random variations in chance will do the job. And for the creationist or the intelligent design advocate, chance would mean there's no designer God. There's no way of using God as a designer to explain the origin of complex life forms. And it has to be said that traditionally, um, Christian theologians have also denied the reality of chance. So for Calvin, the reality of chance would mean that God would not be in control that his sovereignty would be compromised. And so, we have this question to address. If chance is real, can God still be creator? Can God still be in control of things? And would a good... Oh, sorry, just go back again, sorry. Would a good creator leave anything to chance? And as I've intimated at the beginning, one of the most difficult aspects of it is where chance and randomness comes into the problem of suffering. Because the very problem of suffering itself is bad enough, but when you add to it its apparent randomness, it seems even more unfair. If there has to be any suffering, why does it happen uh, to people irrespective of whether they deserve it? Some of you may remember a book that was very widely read when it came out, um, written by a rabbi, Harold Kushner, titled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And the underlying question was, why do bad things happen to good people? It seems so unfair. Now, Rabbi Kushner wrote his book, and it was widely read and I think there are millions in print. But he wrote out of his own personal suffering. His son suffered from a very rare and very distressing disease. And so one understands and sympathizes with the challenge that was to his faith. But he concluded that the reason why bad things happen to good people is to sum it up in modern parlance, that stuff happens (laughs) and God can't do anything about it. So he reaches the conclusion that God is not omnipotent. So although we can sympathize with Rabbi Kushner in, in the distress and the experience of his suffering and his family, that doesn't necessarily validate his conclusion. Because even within the Jewish tradition, another rabbi responded um, by saying, Harold Kirchner wrote that if he, that is God, is not responsible for the bad, neither can he be credited with the good. So in other words, God becomes irrelevant. And he might as well not be there if he can't do anything about what happens in this random world. 
Now, clearly, how are we going to understand um, this, this problem of suffering in the world? Now, it's true that it's possible to believe that God is in control of everything and that suffering is under his control. But then we have the same problem that Einstein has, that if God is actually responsible for that suffering, and that's all we can say, then we ask ourselves, is that God worth our worship? So, how are we to deal with this problem? Let me stop there just for a minute and go back to what we find about what the Bible says about chance and see if we can pick up some clues. Let's think about chance in the Bible. And I'll pick out just a couple of instances. And the first one comes in the story of Gideon and his fleece. You may remember the story. If you don't, it's very briefly. Gideon was looking uh, for some sign from God to guide him. And so he asked God that if he laid out a sheep's fleece on the ground and in the morning there was dew on the fleece but not on the ground, then he'd take that as a sign. And so the next day he woke up and sure enough the fleece had dew on it but the ground was dry. Now Gideon just didn't stop there. He didn't think, well, well, that's my guidance. He thought, hmm, that could have been a fluke. So he then said to God, well, okay, um, tomorrow I want the dew to be on the ground and the fleece to be dry. And the next day, indeed, that's what happens. Only then did Gideon realize that God was guiding him in that way. And if you think of it in modern terms, this was, if you like, the first example of what we call a Fisher significance test in statistics. So Gideon was taking seriously the reality that this could have been just chance. And he wanted to eliminate whether it was just a chance event by doing that statistical test. And then, of course, there's um, the verse in Ecclesiastes where it talks about the race not being to the swift nor the battle to the strong, but time and chance happen to all men. Again, chance is considered to be a real phenomenon. But I think there's an even more um, pertinent and actually rather important instance of chance in the Bible. It comes right at the very beginning in the book of Genesis, chapter 1 and verse 2. Some of you may remember how it goes. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, or the deep. Now it turns out, so I've been told, that to the Hebrew people, uh, the, the deep, or the sea, or the oceans were symbolic of chaos. So what the, the writer of Genesis was saying was, at the very beginning, there was just chaos. And out of that chaos, God's Spirit brought order. And I thought that's really very interesting. When God sets about making a universe, the first thing he makes is chaos. And from that develops the orderliness of the world. So, 
the Bible takes seriously the existence of chance. And what we can do then is, having taken that um, idea that the Bible takes seriously the existence of chance, we want to say then, well, where does chance fit into God's creation? I want to then think about why it is that God might want to include an element of chance, not just at the beginning, in chaos, in his creation, but to allow chance a role in the world that he's making. Now, most of us, when we think about chance or randomness, think of it in rather negative ways, that um, random effects destroy order. And we want to ask, why would God want to have something in his creation that would bring about disorder and chaos? We're always, we've mentioned already the um, role of, of, evil, of chance and evolution. And one can argue there that uh, the randomness um, is the most efficient way in which um, all the possibilities can be explored subject to the laws of physics. And the advantage of allowing life to develop out of that kind of randomness is that life develops a robust ability to cope with change. And our bodies are examples of that. Our immune systems very quickly can develop antibodies when a foreign invader comes in by trying random variations to come up with something that will attack the invader. So here's a positive benefit to having some element of randomness in creation. But for me as a physicist, um, something struck me, it came out of a bit of research I was doing some years ago, um, and it was quite surprising. And if we go to the next slide, I can show you a little bit about how it works. Next one. Oh. Move on, getting behind it. Would a good creator leave anything to chance? And I'm going to say, yes, he might well do, okay? But um, there'd be qualifications. So let me explain what I meant. Um, The experiment I was doing involved um, shining lasers onto atoms. And as the slide shows you there, there's this thing called quantum interference. Now, don't worry about whether this is going to be difficult. It's not really. Probably everybody's heard the phrase a quantum jump, haven't you? Yeah. That's when an atom jumps from one state to another. And it does that when it absorbs what we call a quantum of energy. A little bit of light comes in. And so we took little bits of light from our lasers and shone onto atoms. And we were looking at what happens when an atom absorbed not just one little bit of light, but two, we call them photons, little packets of energy, little quanta that come in and cause the atom to change from one state to another. So the first thing that happens, if we did this in such a way that the atom absorbed two photons represented by those two little arrows, then the quantum jump would occur. The atom would jump from this state to this state and the energy would be absorbed. Now, when we calculate using quantum theory whether that will happen, in other words, remember, we can only calculate the probability that that will happen. We can do the, solve the equation and work that out. We have to include the possibility that our photons will come in in a different order. 
We've got a little short one and a big one. But if we do it the other way around, you're watching my finger there, okay? (laughs) That one, number two, and then the big one and the little one, is just as likely as the other way. And the atom can't tell the difference whether it gets the big one or the wee one first. And so we have to include both possibilities. And when we calculate them, we find that the left-hand one and the right-hand one are exactly the same probability, but they have the opposite sign. One is positive and the other is negative. When you add them together, you get zero. So it never happens. The probability is zero. So we often think of quantum theory as being indeterminate, but that actually isn't true. It's very deterministic. This will determine that that jump never happens. And when we do that experiment, that's exactly what we would see. But in fact, it's actually quite difficult to make that exactly true because most bits of light are a wee bit random. So when we do the experiment again, first way, exactly, we get nothing happens. When we put in our photons, but allow them to be a little bit random, to wobble about a bit, okay? One and two, the two pass. Next one. Here they are jiggling about, okay? <laughs> so this is our random shape, and it could be that the little bits of light are being slightly different in time, or the atom is being shaken about. The effect is the same, that when you add them that way with a bit of randomness, then the quantum jump actually does happen. What is happening is that the randomness destroys this destructive interference. And so the randomness makes this event happen when it otherwise wouldn't. So on the one hand, you've got something that's rigidly deterministic. It will never happen. And then we add a wee bit of chance, a wee bit of randomness, and it does happen. So this randomness instead of being destructive, is actually constructive. It causes something to happen that would otherwise not. And this dawned on me as like a boat from the blue, that chaos could actually be constructive and creative. And the important thing is that it destroys determinism at that level. Randomness can free the universe from the iron grip of determinism. And I thought that was really quite interesting. Hope you did too. (laughs) And that's the end of the physics for tonight. But the take-home message here is that, what I want to say is that the inclusion of chance, even at this level, frees us from determinism. And the nature then can do things that otherwise would be forbidden. So let's go back to um, chance and creation and in particular the hard problem of chance and randomness in suffering. Let's put enough of that jiggling around. (laughs) So why is suffering random? Remember, I think this is probably the hardest aspect of this problem. I want to plant the idea in our minds that the randomness is not just part of the problem, but actually might be a pointer towards a solution. Let's look at the next slide here, that we want to bear in mind three things. And those three things are, firstly, we have chance that we're thinking about tonight. Secondly, 
we have the laws of nature. These are the way in which nature is orderly and obeys the laws of, of physics or whatever. And then also we want to include free will. And just bear with me for the time being that let's suppose all three of these are real, that none of them is an illusion. Then if we have a creation, a world in which these three things are operating and they all interact, then we have to bear in mind what the effect of those would be. Going back to our question about why bad things happen to good people, why is the suffering random? Well, let's think about it from another way. Let's think about supposing it wasn't random. Supposing um, we had a situation that it was not random, and that meant that bad things happened only to bad people. But we also have free will, and the world is ordered by fixed laws. So if I decided to do something bad, like take a chair leg and hit someone with the head with it, then the orderliness of nature has to make sure that that piece of wood stays rigid and could cause pain when I try to do something bad with it. But if the world is governed by some kind of moral law that God has to stop that bad thing happening to that good person, then he's going to have to interfere with the physical laws of the world and to prevent that hard stick from causing pain. So God would have to step in and prevent my free will from doing something bad. Now, I hope you begin to see the problem here. Because if all these three things are operating, then God can't be totally in control. Because if I have free will, and I choose to do something bad, I can, in principle, make God react to that. Because if he's going to stop something bad happening to a good person, he has to interfere with the situation. And so, if God is going to be consistent and fair, he has to do the same thing every time I do that. So, in principle, I could make God behave in a certain way, according to some predictable laws. And therefore, he's not in control, I am, if I've got free will. So, we have a problem there, haven't we? And what I'm going to suggest then is that if, in fact, when I do something like that, I can't actually predict the outcome because the world isn't always predictable. There is chance and randomness present in it. So I can't be absolutely sure when something happens, like when I go to hit you and I trip over (laughs) and I'm prevented in some way from that happening, I can't put that down to God. It might just have been chance. I can't prove that I've made God act in a certain way. And so... In principle, then, it becomes impossible ever to be completely sure that I can make God act in a predictable way because of the presence of randomness and chance in the world. So, in that way, God is insulated from my free will. I can't use my free will to force him to act in a predictable way. So, the randomness that God has built into the universe acts as a kind of 
protection of his sovereignty. Let me illustrate it in another way. Let's just click through those slides here. We have free will, and that means that God must interfere to prevent the suffering. And that means that we can force God to act, and then God is not sovereign. That's the basic principle. But let's think about whether we've got a clue here to the purpose of chance. I'm going to give you an example, not from physics, but from computers. Computers are wonderful things because they are totally deterministic. That's why they're so reliable. They work the same way every time. And that's their great strength. So, for example, we can write a computer program that starts um, with something and goes through various sequences, um, and you end up with a finish. And every time you do that, it does it exactly the same way. That's what makes it so useful. Um, It always gets the same answer. However, that very deterministic um, aspect of it makes them vulnerable because it's possible to infect that program with a virus. And so if we have a virus here and it gets into the program, then what what can happen sometimes is that the process gets caught in a loop and it can't finish. This virus has trapped it in an ever-ending circle. And because it's deterministic, it can't do anything about it. It's stuck. It will never finish. Now, if you're a clever computer programmer, what you can do is you can design the same program and you have it here infected by this virus. But this time you've written the program with a little bit of randomness that comes in. So I make it do a random jump and it leaps out of that closed loop picks up where it left off and completes the job. So that bit of randomness that you put into the program keeps it safe from this malign hacker who wants to stop it working. So you can see there, randomness protects the efficiency and effectiveness of that computer program. And that's a kind of picture of what I'm suggesting here, that the randomness insulates us from God. We can't infect his creation with a virus that prevents him achieving his will. So, um, another way of thinking about this is, because it relates to this idea of free will, and this was a challenge put to William James, and he came up with this very nice analogy. Um, If we've got free will, um, or if we haven't, it it depends on whether everything is determined or not. But James comes up with this idea of supposing um, you're like me, uh, a novice chess player, and we're playing against an infinitely wise chess grandmaster. Okay? So, um, I think we're getting behind here, aren't we? Okay. (laughs) Okay. Let's carry on to the next slide. So, the infinitely wise chess master is playing against me, and... I can move my chess pieces any way I choose within the laws of the game. So the bishop has to go along diagonals and so on. So, but there are zillions of possible moves I could make in the game. But we all know who's going to win, don't we, if I'm playing a chess grandmaster. It doesn't matter what I choose. I can choose freely from any move, and yet whatever I choose, the infinitely wise chess player will, able, 
always to win the game. And for William James, this was a, a, a nice way of thinking about the reality of our free will and yet not preventing God from achieving his purpose. So that um, in the same way, um, we can have freedom to play our chess whatever way we like, but we're always going to lose because the, the master will always be able to adapt whatever he does to whatever move we make. So our freedom is allowed, but his ultimate control is still safe. And what I want to say is that if this guarantees free will in that kind of way, I want to make the same kind of analogy with nature. Nature can make um, random moves, if you like, within the laws of physics, because there's a limit to what you can do, but nature can do all sorts of different things, even at random. But whatever happens, God could take the outcome of any random event and still bring about his purpose so that he can still ultimately be sovereign and in control and yet allow nature freedom to have these random chance events. And indeed, he could work with whatever happens. So this chance is consistent with God still being in control. And I think that's a helpful way of approaching chance in life that we don't have to think of it as being um, undermining uh, God's control, but still within God's providence, that whatever happens, God can respond to it. So nature is free, and our wills are free. So John Sanders puts it this way, that God has the love, wisdom, and perseverance, and power to deal with any situation that arises as God carries out his creational project. So chance falls, as David Bartholomew would put it, within the providence of God. Now I was asked at some stage to mention something about the subject of emergence, and I just want to take a few minutes on a kind of tangent here, um, because we're sort of on the subject of free will, and I want to suggest that there may be another possible reason that God would include randomness at some levels in his creation. Now, I've got a health warning on the next two or three minutes that this is a bit of speculation on my part. Um, I've been thinking a bit about um, how we can still have free will and yet have our minds affected by the physical laws of the atoms and molecules in our brains. And so think, let's think a little bit about what, we, what happens in our brains. So we go to the next picture, this nice healthy brain. <laughs> and the way people are thinking um, about what happens in our brains is that at, at the bottom level, um, it's just atoms and molecules. And this is the way modern science has come to explain everything. Uh, we use this method of reductionism, that things are reduced down to the smallest units and then we give an explanation in terms of what those little units are doing. So that um, we start uh, using this reductionism idea with the atoms and molecules in our brains and then um, they operate within the cells and the chemistry and physics are going on in the cells with these molecules and atoms and electrons moving around. And then these cells build up into a brain. 
And out of that brain develops something we call mind. And I'm putting inverted commas on the mind because some people would argue that the mind is a bit of an illusion. It's an epiphenomenon that just comes out of the brain but isn't real. That is just what the brain does. And therefore we can explain everything in, in reductionist terms by what the atoms are doing in our brains. So this is the um, explanation of a bottom-up causation. That whatever we think at the top level is ultimately just the effect of the atoms and molecules in our brains. And so that means that no matter what we might think, that ultimately things are being determined by the atoms and molecules in our brains. And indeed I've heard a very respected physiologist in Oxford claim that um, free will is an illusion because of this fact that ultimately everything is determined by the atoms and molecules in the cells of our brains. And that what we think is free will is a pure delusion. That we're being determined from the bottom up by the physics and chemistry of atoms and molecules. Now I happen to think that's um, scientifically dubious and philosophically nonsense. Um, and there was a few years ago um, a physiologist called J.B.S. Haldane, who was an atheist, mind you, recognised that if our thinking was no more than the movement and the motion of atoms and molecules in our brain, then uh, we have no reason to suppose our thinking processes to be true, and therefore no reason to suppose our brains to be made up of atoms. <laughs> so if this explanation is true, it's an argument that defeats itself. So there's something wrong with that. More recently, science has begun to take more seriously the idea of what's called emergence. So another way of thinking about things, if we um, look at the same thing from the point of view of emergence, let me explain what I mean by emergence. Emergence is the idea that um, something can be more than the sum of its parts. So... Um, for example, you can explain um, what happens when electricity is conducted through a wire by the movement of the electrons going through it. And we can calculate that there's a resistance to the movement of the electrons one by one as they go through. But then we discover this thing called superconductivity. Oh dear, I'm talking about physics again, aren't I? Okay. But the point about superconductivity is that the current flows with no resistance at all. And that seems to be a miracle. And, but we can't explain it in terms of individual electrons. What happens is that under certain conditions, a new emergence, a new phenomenon emerges called superconductivity, that the electrons pair up together and they move together as little pairs in such a way that um, resistance is rendered zero. And you could never get that by reducing everything to single electrons. So this is an effect that emerges because the world is a little bit more complicated than can be explained by reducing everything down to the smallest bit. That's a simple example of emergence. But perhaps this idea of mind is an obvious example of emergence. One can think of our brains evolving from very simple things all our brains started off as a single cell, remember, in our mummy's tummy. Um, and it has grown to be a very complex organism. 
And at a certain level of complexity, this phenomenon of mind emerges. And this phenomenon can't be explained wholly in terms of the little bits of it. It attains something that is bigger than the sum of the parts. That's what we mean by emergence. So here we have the same idea. And the brain develops and the mind emerges at some stage of complexity in such a way that it can act downwards to change what's happening at the lower level. So this is what we call top-down causation. Now, where does chance come into this? Think of it this way. At the bottom level, you've got these atoms and molecules running around at random. And this top-down facility that the brain has can select from all these random movements particular currents that correspond to reality. In other words, a rational thought. From all the randomness, the brain can select little loops or circuits that correspond to a rational thought. And something like that we already know happens in forming memories in our brains, that little circuits are formed, connections are made, and it's a physical phenomenon. But it can be determined from above by our minds. Outside things can determine. It's not explained totally from the atoms upwards. And so what I'm going to suggest is that when you put this level of randomness in with this phenomenon of emergence, then we are allowed, we're enabled to have free thoughts that are not totally determined by the atoms and molecules in our brains. That's, I think, a possible way of explaining how free will can arise in a world dominated by the laws of physics and chemistry because of this idea of emergence. So, that means actually that there's a consequence of that. That means that we have a responsibility, that we can't blame our genes, we can't blame what's happening in our brain for the bad thoughts or the evil deeds that we do, that the freedom that's created by this randomness at that level, the free will, implies moral responsibility about what we think and what we do. So I think it's an important issue to think about. So let's return then with those ideas in mind to the idea of God micromanaging the world. Remember he used this picture of um, the sparrow that's in God's mind. And he was referring at that time, you'll recall, to uh, Jesus' words in Matthew 10, where Jesus says, um, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of these will fall to the ground without your father. And the sentence stops there, actually, and I looked it up in the Greek. I don't know anything about Greek, but I read it in a book <laughs> that that's all there is. And some people would take that verse and say, well, without your father, wills. In other words, when a sparrow falls, it was God's will for it to fall. But that's not what the Greek says. Other people put, without your father, knows which is slightly different, isn't it? 
And I'm actually a bit more comfortable with the second way of thinking about it, that everything that happens, even the fall of a sparrow, is known to God, that God is there, God is in that situation, whatever happens. He doesn't have to determine that that sparrow falls. He doesn't have to determine that that atom moves that way in my brain. That is free to happen, but God is there. And that puts things in a different perspective, it seems to me. Because when we think about the occurrence of suffering that seems to be unrelated to a person's moral deserts, that's been a problem for many, for, since the beginning, really. And it was a problem in Jesus' time as well. You may recall the instance where Jesus and his disciples encountered a man who was born blind. And you may recall that in that culture, a disability like blindness was seen as a punishment for someone's sin. Either the person had been sinful and been punished by that illness, or bizarrely, his parents, and the punishment was meted on the child. And this idea of punishment and disability being related underlies the whole idea of karma in Eastern religions as well, that our suffering is because we deserve it. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. What did Jesus say? Let's read it. As he went along, he saw, a mind blind from, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. In other words... Suffering can be seen as an opportunity to experience the grace of God in some kind of special way. Now, I know that's easy to say, but what I think Jesus is trying to say to us is that God can act in whatever circumstances chance happens to bring to us, both good and bad. And I know this is not a complete answer. Indeed, no amount of philosophy or theology is going to bring comfort to someone who is suffering. And one ounce of God's grace in that situation is worth a ton of philosophy. But I think it's important to realize that somewhere there is a reason for things happening. And we do our best to try to find out what that is. Why God works in this way. So I think we have at least a clue here as to why there's a purpose for chance in life. I think in my own experience when I was a parent, or still am a parent, but when my children were very small, um, and I was teaching my children to ride a bicycle, I used to initially hold the saddle and run along beside them uh, while they learned, and then gradually I'd release my grip, but I'd always run along beside them with my hand an inch or two below the saddle in case they fell off, I could catch them. And that way, when I let go the child learns to cope with the random bumps, the ups and downs in the road. They develop the facility to balance and to learn to ride the bicycle. If I never let go of that, if I never 
set them free to experience those random bumps, they would never develop that balance and learn to ride their bicycle. And I think that's something like what God does in allowing chance in our world. That we learn by the experience of coping with random, unpredictable events. We learn to trust a God who will keep us safe. And we develop, if you like, a more dynamic relationship with him. And we learn to walk by faith and not by sight. We learn to trust. And trust is only possible and meaningful when there's uncertainty and unpredictability in our world. And so we learn to develop that trusting relationship, which is what God wants. God doesn't want just some intellectual assent to his existence. He wants us to trust him, to learn by experience that he can be trusted and he is with us in all the ups and downs and random events in our life. So I think the psalmist puts this beautifully in Psalm 16. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Thou holdest my lot. We cast lots, but they are cast in God's hands. All that randomness is still within the providence of God. And because he is there holding us, we can be safe. So that he goes on to say, I keep the Lord always before me, and because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. And that's the picture I want to suggest to you for why God allows chance and randomness in this world. That in that way we develop this dynamic relationship with him. Remember Jesus' words about the sparrow? That was in the context of the disciples facing persecution. And what Jesus wanted to get across to them was that no matter what happened to them, And he couldn't say in advance what that would be. It was unpredictable. But no matter what happens, they would come to no eternal harm. That God would be with them to the end of the age. And that kind of security and safety comes by developing trust in the ups and downs of life. The poet Richard Rupert Brooke put it this way. In the First World War, he experienced the random deaths of random bullets flying over or bombs exploding. And yet he puts Christ's promise of eternal safety in the following way. Safe shall be my going, secretly armed against all death's endeavor. Safe though all safety is lost, Safe where men fall. And if these poor limbs die, safest of all. So, in conclusion, what does chance tell us about the character of God? I think, firstly, it tells us that chance is real and not illusory. We need to accept that. Secondly, that it frees nature from determinism. It frees our minds from determinism so that we are morally responsible for our thoughts and actions. And it enables us to think rational thoughts 
that can be true or false. And then also, it gives us partly, at least, an answer to the problem of suffering and its randomness. And then lastly, it preserves God's sovereignty. God is still ultimately in control, even in the presence of chance and randomness. So that everything is within God's providential care. And so I want to leave you with, if you like, this take-home message that um, what we learn from this thinking about chance is that um, it tells us that chance is consistent with a God who is real, but also a God who is personal. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. That was terrific. We've got two minutes for questions. So, can we uh, set the first question? Once. Gentlemen at the front. Thanks very much, Paul. In that slide where you showed the emergence and it curled down, what was that input? Well, the input is that was a diagram to represent um, what happens when something emerges that is more than the sum of the parts. It's not um, explicable totally in terms of the little bits that led up to it. So that something appears, as it were, at this level. It's not at the lower level. In the same way, if we took an atom or molecule of water, H2O, that's not wet, okay? It's just a molecule. Wetness is an emergent property. When you get lots of them all together um, at a certain temperature, you get wetness. And it does stuff that individual atoms won't do. Okay? So that phenomenon emerges at a certain level. So what I'm picturing there is that the atoms make cells, the cells make um, brains, and as it gets more complicated, then out of this emerges this property to be able to act downwards. Okay, so it turns round and can act downwards to change, affect what's happening at the lower level. But there's no input of any kind. No, no. Okay. The, emer- the property of mind develops out of our brain. Okay. It's not something planted in from outside. Another question. Perhaps just wait for the the microphone, then everyone can hear. Thank you. Excellent talk. Is this on? Yeah. Um, You didn't mention um, entropy at all, uh, second law of thermodynamics, which, I mean, we've got to be careful when we talk about the laws of physics, because you know better than I do, they change. uh, with, with time and our understanding of the universe. But uh, it seems to me that the universe is doomed because entropy will increase in a closed system. We can talk about that, whether it is a closed system, I assume it is. And yet we have a sense of form, um, almost platonic, 
And we seem to be running, as human beings, homo sapiens, running against that. This building has form. Its entropy is reasonably low. It would, it, it would increase if it was a pile of rubble, and then if it became gas, it would increase more. I'm sure you'd believe that. Um, it seems God designed this universe that runs against the way we, would, we as homo sapiens would, would want it to be. I mean, can you explain why God would have a, wor- a world that has, or a universe that has entropy? Um, which ends in, 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 I haven't used the word chaos it is different and you, perhaps you can explain it better than I can but just, I, I have a real problem with this because right. we have a sense of design and, and yet the universe is working against us have you got any thoughts on that? that's a very interesting question that's another way of saying that's a hard one um, <laughs> So for people who are not uh, familiar with the idea of entropy, um, uh, entropy is a word we use to quantify the degree of disorder. So if we started off with a pile of Lego bricks all stuck together, we'd say that was ordered and had a very low entropy. And then we let my four-year-old grandson come in and he tears it apart and they're all over the floor and it's all disordered, so entropy has increased. And we could actually, um, by measuring how far they all were apart, put a figure on how disordered it was. So that's a concept. Um, and in order to reverse that, we'd have to physically move the bricks back together. So we'd have to put, do work to restore the original state. Now, the interesting thing is that... Um, the world, according to the idea that Genesis gives us, started off in some kind of disordered state. The physics story is the Big Bang. It's an enormous explosion of energy. So an input of energy from somewhere, we know not where, which created both space and time. And within that space and time, um, the initial disordered state was nonetheless set up in some way so that this orderliness would emerge. And Roger Penrose, who's a mathematician at Oxford, who's not a Christian, as far as I know, or a particularly religious person, has calculated the precision with which the initial state had to be created in order to produce the world of the universe that we now see. And the odds against that happening by pure chance are something like 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Okay. You, you, there wouldn't be enough room in this room to put noughts on the end of that. Okay. So that's an enormously impossible n- number to think about. So that looks very odd, you know, that the world was set up with that fine-tuning so that the world would develop in the way it has, that carbon atoms would form in a stable way to produce life, that in some parts of the universe, um, life would emerge, emergence again, um, and at some point, conscious beings like you and me would emerge to talk about these really weird ideas about purpose and meaning. Okay, And so... Trying to tie that up with God's purpose is what we're trying to do here. But I think, as human beings, there's a limit to what we can know. But what we discern, what we seem to see, is a process happening. 
in which we are part, we have a part to play in it, and that um, this isn't the final product, that God is doing something, and in that doing something, it involves um, us thinking about it, and us sometimes suffering and learning from that. So in that process, we are we become something different. And God wants us to become something, some people who trust him. So there's a process that will have a beginning and will have an end. As you rightly say, if we project what's happening now, on some models, okay, the universe is expanding and would go on expanding forever. On another model, it would go out so far and then collapse back in on itself. And we're not absolutely certain, but we think the first one's more likely, that because the rate of expansion is accelerating. Um, and so if you project into the future, all the atoms will get so far apart that it's so disordered, maximum entropy, nothing happens. It's really boring. Um, um, and that's the end of life. Okay. But that is not necessarily the end of the story. What the Christian hope is that um, out of this creation, at some point, a new creation will be made. We don't know how. We actually get an interesting clue in the resurrection of Jesus. That his body that was resurrected had a different kind of property. That it could um, go through solid walls. <laughs> totally weird, okay? But that, and they couldn't explain it. They just said, well, that seemed to be what happened. And until recently, we just thought, that's nonsense, because we know from the laws of nature that atoms can't go through each other. It can't. You don't fall through the seat because the electrical forces keep you apart. But actually, about 20 years ago, we discovered that we could make atoms in a certain way that they would go through each other. Um, if they get into right quantum states, matter can pass through matter. It's almost miraculous. This is a new state of matter. Now, if we can do that, <laughs> just think what God could do uh, in recreating matter out of the stuff that's already here. So we don't know how he will do it. I'm just speculating. But I'm saying it's not beyond reason to suppose that um, the end of the world um, is in God's hands and he will do something with it. Um, but there's a limit to how much, how much, what sort of answer we can give to that question. But it's a good one. <laughs> Oh, there's a lady here. Um, I think my question may have been much similar to this, yes. but in my very much layman's terms, uh, when you talk about the chessboard, yeah. I thought about global warming. Yes. Should we, should we be worried? Or is God, he's got it all in control, and basically whatever we do to it, whether we try to, in a small way, repair it, he's, he's much greater control, so should we be worried? <laughs> That's a politically loaded question. <laughs> um, my short answer is, is yes. I think as Christian people, we have a responsibility to care for the world, to care for other people in the world, and not to harm them by our own selfish exploitation. So there's a moral responsibility to, to, to take action to prevent um, global warming and climate change. And it is within our power to do that if we act 
together and soon enough. I don't, there are, I know there are some people who say, we don't need to worry about it because God's going to fix it all in the end. But then if we took that attitude, we wouldn't have any hospitals. Well, you got sick, well, don't worry about it, you know. God will fix it in the end. Jesus didn't do that. That's not the way we approach life. That's not how we express God's love in the world. No, we should be worried. We should take concern. And we should act in love. Um, um, That's it. Is that the one you want? Okay. Um, I, I suppose my 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 question would be. Um, uh, I'm over Where here. are you? Okay. <laughs> my, my, my question would be. I, I suppose I, I see it all on the on the on the larger the larger scale, but I, I wonder how you would maybe explain the the hundreds of prophecies foretelling the birth of Christ. You know how in a universe of you know, where, where, where random chance is kind of colliding to have, you know, these hundreds and hundreds of unique individual things happening to uh, conspire for the birth of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, all in the exact ways that the Bible foretells, within within randomness as well. I, 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 I can't quite see it on that, that, that smaller scale. Did everybody hear the question? So how do we understand the prophecies of, for example, the coming of of Jesus as being fulfillments in, and even the death of Jesus in some quite um, precise detail? Um, Well, there are two things, observations I'd make. Firstly is that sometimes the detail is read backwards, as it were, um, that some of the prophecies are, in a sense, more general and can be seen to have um, come true in a particular way. Um, And that there's a sense in which there was something determined there, that God was determined to come into this world in some way. Now, if he determined that the human being Jesus, who was God in human form was going to be exactly 168 centimetres high, or whether it's going to be 169 centimetres, I don't know. Would it have made much difference? I'm not sure. Some of those things don't really matter that much. Some of the details, as it were, are not that important. That God can work in whatever happens. He took the risk of coming into this world of chaos and pain, and um, subjected himself to it willingly, um, yet within the providential care of God. That some people have suggested, for example, Jesus actually didn't have to die on a cross. He might have died some other. He might have been hanged. That would have fulfilled a prophecy as well. Cursed be he who is hanged on a tree. Remember, not a cross, a tree. So you interpret that prophecy as coming true on the cross, but it's a backward interpretation, if you like. But the general idea is true. The prophecy was fulfilled in some sense. Um, And the actual details, as it were, 
don't matter that much. Is that a kind of answer? Um, I guess it's, it's also the the wondering of does it does it take away the, the the people's free will in some sense? You know, as in you know, it predicted the town where Jesus would be born. Does that then take away the, the free will of say, uh, you know, the, the the Romans who said that the census would send people back to their towns at that time? I, uh, I, you know, I get the point. So there's a sequence of people, a series of people involved here. Um, of course, the famous one is Judas. Was Judas determined? Uh, ordained to do that. I think the question about free will from uh, the analogy I've used about God using whatever uh, Judas did um, still allowed Judas to be responsible for what he did. And Jesus said as much, you know, um, woe to him by whom he is betrayed. You know, he still has a choice. He he could have not done it. Um, And Jesus might have died some other way, as it were. God would have uh, fulfilled his purpose in some other way. Um, Mary, for example, uh, was given a choice as to whether she... She could have rejected um, God using her as the mother of of the baby, but she was willing to subject herself to that social stigma of having a a child out of wedlock. Um, So she took a choice of trusting God. Uh, If she had not done that, then perhaps Jesus would have been born to somebody else. We don't know, okay? So both are happening. People freely chose and freely acted, and yet God worked providentially by the choices that they made. Hello, there's one thing I've always wondered about on this. Um, You know you've got Hawking's end theory and all the rest of it. Sorry? You've got Stephen Hawking's end theory and the multiverse. Mm -hmm. How would you incorporate that into a a theology? Uh, The question is, how would I incorporate um, what's called the multiverse idea, um, which is a a mathematical um, construct that comes out of a very abstruse theory about the ultimate... Um, structure of matter as yeah. a kind of string theory. You don't need to do the details, but it's a bit of... <laughs> wouldn't be sophisticated. It's very sophisticated, pure mathematics, yeah. okay? Yeah. And this mathematics uh, suggests that it is possible that there are more than one universe. In fact, there's millions of them, perhaps even an infinite number of them. Um, how do we cope with that? Well, first of all, from the scientific point of view, it's by no means accepted that that's real science. <laughs> Um, because they're all, every form of mathematics doesn't have to be realized in nature. A lot of it is, surprisingly. You know, when we invented complex numbers, we didn't realize um, how useful they were going to be <laughs> to describe nature. Um, and predictions of particles that come out of quantum theory turn out to be true. They were a mathematical result of a solution of an equation and it predicted an appearance of a particle. And there it was, came out of the maths. That doesn't always happen. Not every mathematics theory that we invent will correspond to reality. And therefore, we don't have to believe that just because a mathematical theory predicts there is the possibility of millions of other universes that it is actually true. But the scientific point is that there's no way we can tell. (laughs) And therefore, in that sense, it isn't really science. It's not... um, 
according to Kuhn's idea, it's not a testable theory. It's not falsifiable. Because there's no contract with these other universes. They're causally independent. Nothing in another universe can cause any effect in this universe or vice versa. And therefore, it's not science. If there was some connection, if we could detect one of these other universes by some causal link, then it suddenly becomes part of our universe, right? Uh, So uh, you can't have it both ways. If there's a causal connection and we can detect them, then it's just one big universe, even bigger than one we've got. Um, So it's a rather kind of metaphysical question. Um, And in any case, if God's big enough to make one big universe, he can make more. (laughs) It doesn't worry me, really. Um, I've got enough to worry about in this one. (laughs) I don't want to be too... I don't want to be trivial, uh, but... In a sense, the multiverse idea is not universally accepted as, as mainstream science quite yet. There's a question down here. Oh, can I have two? There's one here and one at the back. Okay, sorry. I wonder why you focused on the one incident of Jesus saying about the man... Uh, because it can be translated, don't worry about whether this was caused by his sin or his parents' sin. Mm-hmm. You concentrate on seeing it as an opportunity mm-hmm. for bringing glory to God, which is, I think is a better translation than the yes. other one which causes us problems. Yes. But you don't touch on the fact that the Bible has an enormous lot to say that God caused suffering in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And although some would say, ah, oh, but in the New Testament it's not the same, You've got Paul saying to the church at Corinth, for this cause, many are weak and sick among you, and some have even fallen asleep. Mm -hmm. So in fact, why should we focus on the the chance side, which I'm sure is applicable, when the Bible has much, much more to say, that in fact God does, on many occasions, cause suffering. We could get into a very interesting debate about how the Old Testament expresses God's action in the world. Um, And I gave the writers of the Old Testament problems as well. Why on earth are you using these pagan people to to do your will? They couldn't get their head around that. Um, So here was something evil that God was using for his purpose. Using, not necessarily causing. I think there are, um, and it was mostly in the context of judgment, as it were. Um, And so God's judgment is built into the world and comes into the world in in different ways. There's built-in judgment by consequences of what we do. And then there's a a judgment that God can bring and will ultimately bring uh, for our moral failings for which we are not having consequences in this world. Um, but we won't get away with it, as it were. Ultimately, justice will be done. And uh, the, the, I think God is, is showing us in real life, as he did through the Old Testament, that evil does have consequences and will be judged. And so that's one reason why he was doing that kind of thing. And in a sense, to use your phrase, causing uh, these evils to happen. But he was using the evil 
these people were militaristic, they were imperialistic. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, they were nasty people, okay? And they liked killing people. And, and God just was able to use that without causing it necessarily. He wasn't responsible for their evil, but he could take that evil and use it for some purpose. Just as ultimately he took the evil of murdering Christ to turn it into our salvation. I think there was one lady at the back. Uh, May I ask, do you have a view on uh, the role of prayer and healing, uh, in particular faith healing? Is it a random event or is it uh, something else? (sighs) (laughs) That's another good question and it's worth another hour or so. But I think my short answer is that um, one has to think carefully about what one means by prayer that prayer is not a mechanism for getting what we want out of God, that prayer is at base a request. It's also a means in which God involves us in his work in the world. Uh, He doesn't always have to use us. He can work um, independently and bring healing in response to our prayers. Um, So it's a both and, that God can work with and without our prayers. Um, and he chooses often to work in response to our prayers. So I don't think it's random, but um, in a funny kind of way, the, per- the presence of randomness is an aid in a sense because we can't do prayer experiments and say, we're going to pray for the people on this side of the room and see how many get well, and we'll not pray for you guys, sorry, and see how many get well. Those experiments have been tried, but of course they're not doing experiments on prayer. Because that's not what prayer is. Prayer is not a way, a a mechanism for getting something to happen or making God do something. Um, Because when a prayer is answered, and I could tell you about prayers of healing in my own family, that I believe were answers to prayer and that God acted, I'm not going to say that it would necessarily convince a, a convinced, convinced atheist, because that's not what they're for. Because even if I told you that my wife was healed in response to a prayer of mine, uh, it's no benefit of me. Uh, I believe God acted. But the atheist would say, well, it might have happened anyway. It was just a coincidence you happened to pray. But then I remember what Einstein, lovely man, said, Coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. <laughs> Isn't that lovely? <laughs> so whatever happens, it, we bring to the events of our life a, a worldview, uh, an assumption about whether God is there or not, and that will color how we interpret what happens. So prayer is not given to us as a way of proving God's existence. It's a way of drawing us closer to him and changing us and changing the world through us. Professor Hewitt and ladies and gentlemen, I think that was a tour de force. Um, Professor Hewitt has introduced us to paradigm of between chance, laws of nature, and faith, in essence. And 
He's taken us on a journey exploring the pluses and minuses of the effects of chance and chaos and led to this wonderful final conclusion that God is real and he's personal. And to extract that conclusion with a clear and accessible line of reasoning is truly astonishing. And I would show all of us would like to thank you again for taking us on that journey.